I'm Dan Walters. And I'm Anthony Peters. This is the No Ideas Podcast. Hello again. Welcome back to the No Ideas Podcast. Thanks to everybody so far for listening and for enjoying the show. Um, this week we've got something a little bit different. Uh, yeah, so today's episode uh, is with Fandango Kid, aka Annie Nicholson. Um, Annie is an artist and her work is autobiographical um, and covers really challenging subjects like loss and grief, um, family and love, um, and tries to get people talking about these subjects more openly. So back in the beginning of the summer, maybe late spring, um, I was in, on Instagram and came upon her work. And basically, first when I looked at it, I loved it for the typography. And then when I took a second look, I realised how honest it was. And I messaged her then to say to tell her how brave th- that her work was and how amazing it was that she was sharing these stories and how this would help other people. Um, and then I spoke to Dan, and then we decided that we should definitely speak to her because her story is just absolutely totally inspiring um as well as as well as touching on incredibly um sensitive subjects there's also a lot of warm moments and a lot of very funny moments so um yeah she grew up in an incredible family and and some of the stories she tells us are amazing just her her grandma and her her dad her mum like they're just Larger than life yeah, characters. Totally. Just a heads up: today's episode has a few swear words, um, covers some sensitive subjects, and has a few mild sexual references as well. So, if you're listening with uh, younger people, just um, just we just wanted to let you know that it might not be appropriate, or uh, you might get asked a few questions afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we hope that you get as much out of this as we did, um, and. It's just amazing that we get an opportunity to help Annie to spread her messages and her ideas with people. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy the story and uh, enjoy the show. (laughs) Okay. Fandango Kid is the alter ego of paste-up artist, photographer, typographer and teacher Annie Nicholson. Annie's work explores themes of loss and grief, gender identity, sexual identity, love, self-esteem and community via the medium of paste-up street art. But instead of slinking around in a hoodie, you will find her dressed often in gold dresses and bright patterns, celebrating the moment and life in general as she shares her immense wisdom on the streets of major cities across the globe. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and your childhood? So my dad, my granddad had a um, butcher shop and my dad used to do loads of work with like the kosher butchers uh, in North London. And so they, my dad sort of like pretty much stalked my mum until she went out with him and just harassed her. Um, probably shouldn't add that actually on this. <laughs> yeah, sort of hassled her until she went out with him. And then, um, but we lived out of London in this like little bumblefuck village with about three people in and I was one of them so (laughs) (laughs) we never really um it was never like our just our immediate family in the house we always had someone who ended up staying who was like having a drama or a divorce or a meltdown or something like that so it was always like I mean often 
sort of like kind of meeting people in the corridor in the morning just being like who are you kind of thing just like <laughs> quite often yeah so one guy came to our house once and was selling these aerial photographs like weird or like people like selling like ironing board covers and one of them ended up staying for the weekend it's just like <laughs> what the fuck dad like that was our dad would always bring you know always the beast yeah a lot of people around the table so just some random people or old friends as well or? oh yeah old friends as well people you know struggling with stuff that was going on in their home life like one guy was um, my dad found sleeping outside um once and he invited him in and he stayed for two years Amazing. and we've been to his wedding we know his kids and everything he's like wow. super lovely so <laughs> so your dad really... had a really big heart for yeah people. well they both did like my parents were really they were totally opposite so my dad was like this sort of northern geezer gangster and my mum was like this real beautiful smart english rose and they had this really good way of working together and um it was a lot of you know there was a big sense of community and warmth and just looking after people that we all have inherited so my elder sister does it and like ever you know people yeah in our family were very much about just taking care of people I think yeah like friends that are your family so I guess you carried that through in a lot of your work as well and looking after people or sharing wisdom or letting people in to your life as well but I mean we can talk about that later but um so what so your dad what what did your dad do <laughs> well he used to call himself an exotic spice importer Amazing. literally that was on his business <laughs> card like mate seriously so he so he had like a, always had these different ventures but um he got really into working with um all the North London rabbis um, to um, distribute this kind of kosher stuff, to, kosher spices to, to butcher shops around North London. Um, and that's how he met Jack, my granddad. And But there was it was always to do with food, basically. Like everyone in our family works in food, except for, for me. Um, so my sister, my, my middle sister had a restaurant, you know, and so it was always, yeah, very much about like, and we had this sort of family business that was, yeah, it was a bit confusing, but spices, I guess, <laughs> call it spices and a bit under the table. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> um, and in some of your work, you've mentioned your grandma, Susie. Yeah. She sounds like an amazing character. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell was... us a bit about her? Yeah, so she was like this, like, four foot nine, like, matriarch. Um, so there's a lot of strong women in my family. So my, my dad's dad went out one day to get groceries um, and he took a boat to New York and he never came back. Wow. And so my dad never saw him again. He was like nine. And so my grandma, um, she, yeah, she was like the... Um, she was the mascot for Blackpool FC, so they used to take her on the in the minibus, and she was tiny, so they used to give her a crate, but she had a mouth like the Mersey Tunnel, so she used to just like shout obscenities at the referee from the other side, the other two, and then she'd knit them all scarves in half time and stuff. So she used to do like the orange and white scarves for the whole team, and she was like, she knew everybody, like this like real like. She used to go down the pub with like um, grass skirts on because my dad was, was in the Navy so he was in Hawaii for a long time so he would bring her back all this stuff so she had these grass skirts that she loved <laughs> so she used to have this collection of grass skirts she'd go down the pub and drink Guinness and then just be like yeah just I mean everyone knew her I mean, even when I went back to Blackpool to do some work recently 
and we were talking to some local people and I mentioned her name and they were like, oh my God, yeah, we like we know of her. So, and she was long gone, you know, so. That's yeah. what, in one of your pieces of work, you talk about her giving you some advice over, yeah. a, over a glass of sherry or something. Yeah, and a cigarette at nine, nine years old. <laughs> so, she like, so she lived opposite. So when, so when my dad moved to the South, he bought her a flat, um, opposite our house so she was always over and she rang me one day and she pretty much like brought me up when my mum and dad were setting up their business so she rang me up one day and she was like can you come over so I was like yeah so I went around she and she so in our house she had like the the couch and the um and the curtains and the wallpaper were all the same it's like the same pattern so you just go in and just be like a total head fuck you got in and she'd smoke with the windows shut right so you kind of got in and I was just I mean then no one worried about it at all so and she gave me a cigarette and taught me how to blow smoke rings which is amazing <laughs> and a little inch of sherry and she was like I just want you just want you to know that and like I kind of sat down and she's like, I just want you to know that like men will come into your life and they will seduce you. And I was like, so I said, what does seduce mean? Like with the cigarette and the sherry. And she was like, well, you know, it's when someone takes something from you that you, you, you're not quite sure if you want to give it or not. And, um, and I was like, okay. And she said, you know, and, and they will come and, and, you know, they'll come at any time and they, you know, they might, you know, they might try and steal your magic, but you don't give your magic to them. You keep your magic for yourself for when you're ready to give it. And I just remember really clearly sort of listening to all of this and not really absorbing it until years later and thinking, oh yeah, okay, you know, she's obviously, like, it's obviously probably about her husband that kind of <laughs> went off. But it's really, it really stuck with me. And it's like, yeah, you know, like, you, yeah, you hold on to your magic for yourself and, you know, and use it when you're ready. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, and she made me, she said, you know, you're not going to tell, you don't tell your parents about this. So I kind of had like a, a polo mint and like stumbled back across the road and was like, all right, and I never told them. So yeah, it was great. Amazing. Yeah, I'd love to recreate that scene somehow in like a film setting. I really want to try and recreate that story, you know. Maybe so. there's, there's a, a film of your life coming up at Maybe. some point. Yeah. Who, who, would, who would play you in the story of your life? I don't know, maybe Crystal Carrington. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Don't know. Maybe I wouldn't mind a bit of Tilda Swinton actually, Ooh, with a yeah, cameo from Annie Lennox or something. Kind of. Yeah. Um, so, it's all about school. How how was school growing up? Um, mm, I really liked school growing right. up. Yeah. Where did you go to school? Um, I went to school in the village. When oh I, right. Okay. Yeah. So that was like yeah it was pretty boring and our parents were kind of like I had I was really good friends with these two guys who I'm really close to still now like kind of like my family but I didn't really didn't really like school so much and uh my parents were always I was always kind of like because my dad was really eccentric and I was always really embarrassed because he'd come and pick me up in like kimonos and like we had the, our, <laughs> our family car was like this white trans am with an eagle on the bonnet oh my right? God. so everyone else is like you know off to school in like the Ford Cortina and I'm like <laughs> yes and he'd turn up with like these aviator sunglasses on like a kimono on with like pair of tiny pants on and like leaning out of the window <laughs> it was horrible I mean it was That's horrible amazing. at the time and then when I got to like 20 I was like oh this is great yeah but yeah wow. 
Yeah. It's like my dream car. That is. <laughs> and now, like, you know, I've written, there's so many things that I take from him now as I've got older that, you know, mm. like the recent trip to the desert was pretty much that, to be honest. But yeah, but then I didn't, yeah, I wasn't so into school. Um, what about any early creative memories? What's the first one that you can remember? Um, we used to, um, yeah, we're always we we're always making stuff. Cause my dad was a really re- well, they both were actually. But my dad was really practical, so my parents would often like totally transform spaces. Um, and I remember um, my mum used to do this. She used to so in the business, they people used to all have these boiler suits and. Um, my mum used to like she had a bunch of them she used to transform them and wear them to like dinner parties and stuff so she would like um, raise she had like this white blonde hair and she'd sort of razor it and wear these clogs and these boiler suits so like these massive kind of gold belts around the middle and just you know definitely be like the sort of weird babe of the village so <laughs> people didn't quite know what to do with her yeah. but it was like oh my gosh like yeah she could transform looks you know she used to customise the stuff that your dad yeah, and she's okay. very, and there's this sort of quite this this sort of very androgynous thread running through. So I really like overalls and workwear mm. and stuff, and you know, yeah, yes. Yeah, so she'd wear a lot of his stuff, and I remember thinking that was really cool. But like it, at night, they they used to um, coordinate their outfits. They used to lay their outfits out. My parents. Yeah. yeah. Is it? So we, they'd we lay them yeah. out, right? So, so my dad, even like my mum had died, but my dad used to ring me from Portugal if I go over on like the Friday night, and he'd always ring me before and say, "What colours have you got on?" Because I'm gonna make sure that I've coordinated mine <laughs> so we can go out on the raz, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> so he'd like want to pick me up and like go, and he was like a massive sort of drinker and partier, so. He would like want to make sure that I looked like that I was fitting with what he had on. <laughs> so, <laughs> the vanity of it was like you know, but it was like fun. But it was you know, yeah, it wasn't it's like, like it's like team team yeah. uniform kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, well. it was all about the adventure, you know, and like the exhibitionism as well, you know, like yeah. So do you did you not move to Portugal with? Well, they kind of like, so my mum, we still had a house in the UK, so my mum sort of stayed until I finished my A-levels, and then, but they were sort of backwards and forwards, and my dad pretty much like, went there, and was like, oh, me, I'm not coming back, so, (laughs) yeah. Whereabouts in Portugal was it? It's like the south, in this um, little valley, um, uh, like close to Spain, so the middle of nowhere, but yeah, a very sexy beast, to be honest, but no, like, um... It's really untouristy, but his his vibes were very sexy beast. <laughs> On the Ray Winston side of things. On the Ray Winston yeah. side of things, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of like tattoos and, you know, all this stuff from the navy, but like and all the, he would do this like this monotone thing, you know, that's sort of like salmon head to toe. <laughs> like <or> like <laughs> banana yellow, you know, just like wow. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, who inspired you to pursue a career as an artist? Is there any um, influential teachers or your parents? Or? Not so much my parents, because my parents, I mean, my mum, yeah, but my dad was really about kind of making money, actually. Um, so, I think you just end up doing what you need to do. For your, you just, it's like within you, right? You, you mm. always keep coming back to what you need to do. So, um, my biggest kind of um, voice of encouragement is my friend Camille, who's kind of, I've known since I was, you know, 
a young woman and she has been supportive like the whole way really and just really believe like you know she she I make this piece of work that says the people who love you will see your light even when you're in darkness and she said that to me um many years ago when I was in the sort of sort of darkest point of my life and um yeah and I think that's just I've always hung on to that and kind of tried to kind of yeah to have people that believe in you even when you're not making is great because you know it's been a period of time that I haven't been yeah do you remember the first time you that you actually made something or um I was always making clothes yeah I was always really into kind of um chopping things up and like you know um customizing stuff and yeah I used to do what my mum did so with all the boiler suits and stuff and all the workwear because we had a lot of that kind of knocking around um and yeah a lot of like cooking and stuff it was always like my mum used to be quite sort of militant about not having recipes which was like so <laughs> it was like the opposite so she would so she never I think if you bake stuff you have to be really into that but she would just sort of say you just have to like feel it so there'd be a lot of disasters but like <laughs> but I think you kind of by feeling it you can so there's a lot of creativity in that sense um and a lot of yeah like they'd always be that they we never really sort of sat around it was always like an activity yeah I love that so your mum taught you to sew she taught, she taught you... me to sew she taught me to cook yeah she was very much like um quite sort of punk in her mentality nice. so she yeah she, they both had a sort of yeah I mean everyone in my family has a bit of a like fuck it sort of mentality yeah well, walking around the, a small village in a boiler suit and a razor <laughs> and that's incredible that's yeah. massively punk yeah yeah it sounds quite it's, like seven yeah it's like yeah I mean I was really proud at a later date, but not when I was living it. So. <laughs> I would have, I would have loved to have been dropped off at school in a, was it a Trans Am. You yeah, Trans Am. Yeah. My mum had a brown maxi, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we called it the tank. Really. That was kind of all she could afford. We used to get. A, I feel shamed, but <laughs> to drop us like a hundred meters up the road from the school. Yeah, well, we I pretty much out. did that with the Trans Am because it's like you know it's one extreme to the next, but it was yeah. Yeah, it didn't help with, like, you know, the kind... Because I think there's, like, a lot of... You know, I remember in school there being, like, a lot of girls that all looked the same. And there was a point in my life when I really wanted to um, look like that. So do you remember there was that thing of, like, girls that penciled in their eyebrows? Mm. So I had used to have these really thick eyebrows and I shaved them off one day, like, totally. Because I was like, fuck, I can't... Don't really know how to tweeze them all out so I shaved them off and that's the only time that I got grounded from in the house my dad was like it's an embarrassment you can't like you just he was like you just, he, and I remember him saying like you know classic women you know like edgy women they, they you know classic and edgy women they, they have like full eyebrows and you like you've just it's a disgrace <laughs> like, <okay>. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. probably had some something to do with you plowing your own furrow though like doing your own thing right yeah well I, well to be honest I kind of wanted to be like those girls because I just wanted to fit in yeah but um yeah and then I remember going to like the, I mean, like the local pool one day and forgetting the pencil and coming out with like <laughs> nothing just oh, yeah. Man. yeah yeah it's awkward trying to fit in when you're a teenager <laughs> it's hard to fit in and it's, it's taking me a long time like it, I wanted to fit in in school and I didn't really and um now it's like it's sort of gone full swing, you know, full circle, which is kind of nice. It's like a relief when you realise you don't have to. Hmm. You know, it's quite nice. It's one of the things I like about 
getting older is that like I don't no longer feel like I have to follow other people's lead on fashion and things like this although like not exactly <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty cool yeah. this t-shirt I would go with that t-shirt you just start to care less I think yeah in, in the right way not in the right way <laughs> digging myself a hole here um so then after school you went to to Brighton yeah. Well, you went to college and then to Brighton, I'm guessing. Yeah, so I went to... I actually moved to Sydney because my sister um, was living in Sydney. And she had this restaurant. She was really um, big in the kind of lesbian community. So I went straight from, like, the village to this, like, <laughs> lesbian, like, major sort of lesbian environment, which was great. Um, and was sort of... I've always been surrounded by strong women, but, like, I was suddenly, like... It was, like, my sort of life you know on a daily basis and I loved it there and um I go back there quite a lot so I was it's like a bit of a second home and then I moved to Brighton um did my degree and um part of that degree was in Paris where I was started making a lot of work like a lot of um I worked for this designer who was quite punk in her mentality as well so I got really into yeah I got really into clothing and stuff there but it's always been I've always been between language and 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 um and art so that's probably why there's a lot of language in my work it's like narrative driven so what did you study in Brighton so I studied French and Italian film um and so and then you though went on to do graphics yeah because so with my fat with my with my dad particularly there was this heavy pressure to um to have a skill where he, you knew you could make money and so I was sort of I ended up doing this degree that I never really felt was quite for me and it took me a long time to really work out what I where my sort of well I always knew where the desire was but I just to have the confidence to do it um and so I ended up doing a master's in graphic design at LCC um but as soon as I graduated from LCC I, I lost loads of family so it's sort of yeah, so it's taken me a really long time to find my voice. So, we'll come to that in a mo. Um, but did you, was it at LCC you found the work of people like Barbara Kruger, Jenny Holzer and Tracy Emin? I've always actually been into that, yeah, I've always liked their work. Um, but particularly, I mean, they're my biggest references now. It's hard to think about what I would have been making... I often think about this, like what I would have been making if they were, if my family was still alive, because it's been so driven, you know, like with such a storytelling family anyway, and so much of my immediate consciousness is to handle what has happened to me. So it's very difficult to think about what I would have been doing if they were still here, okay. you know. And I think one thing that I that is has always run through you know it's really good to have friends that know you from before who can remind you of what you were like because I there there's something very distinct about such a great like traumatic loss and life change and one thing that sort of happens is I I see my life as like two different episodes or almost two different lives actually so I can't quite remember who I was before you know and then friends that have known you forever will say oh they will remind you of like consistencies which is great and one of those is you know, I, every relationship that I have, even if it's like the person in the corner shop, is I have quite a lot of intimacy in my relationships. So I do like to know, like you know, like I build things based on intimate connections. You know, mostly family links or stories, or you know, just 
really need to sort of have that to make sense of the world I think so it probably probably my work would be you know it wouldn't be entirely dissimilar to what I'm doing now you know so was it 2011 when you got out of uni of, uh I of, finished uni in course? uh 2010 okay yeah moved to Australia moved, I went back to Australia to stay with your sister well, I was in this long-term relationship with um, a guy from Sydney as well for like seven years. So I went back there um, and yeah, so I was, we, we were kind of, well, we had to get married for me to stay in the country and I decided to, so we, it was a so many life changes in like three months. So I kind of decided that like I loved him, but I just didn't really want to get married. It was, I was like 27 and I sort of, yeah I just was like I'm gonna go so so I left and then I came back and um I wanted to sort of start set up a business in London and um I was back for like three weeks and and, and my, I lost my sister okay. um yeah so are you comfortable with talking about this this time in yeah your life? Okay. yeah that's fine yeah um, yeah so it was at this point when everything kind of changed and your direction of work changed and everything else so you mind talking about what what happened tonight? Yeah, so um, well, my um, my sister and her partner and my mum were killed in an accident um, in New York. It was a helicopter accident um, in the East River, and my, it was my sister's fortieth, and they all went over to New York um, to celebrate it. And I was due to go, as was my elder sister. Um, but the two of us had these, these work commitments at the last minute where we just couldn't go. Um, so we actually had a ticket and, and we just, we didn't take it. We had to change it. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, and they died in this accident and one by one over a long period of time, like over six weeks or something. And my dad was also in the accident and he survived it. Um, but, um, we... Yeah, in those first few years of so it's not just it's not just a loss. It's like a trauma, right? So you feel it physically on a on a physical scale, where you actually feel like you know you feel um, like a physical pain in your heart, you know, for a long time. And um, there were years when I was like literally for years when I was waking up every day having to bend back my fingers, like because you sleep with like clenched fists and. You'd like I would like be covered in blood in the night and like just crazy stuff that happens in your dreams because you in your dream life you work out a lot mm. of trauma like you because that you can't quite handle in your waking life I I think so the dreams were really really important and a lot of the stories from growing up and a lot of the stories that I now tell were those things coming into my kind of dream life and um, and yeah so those first few years. I was making things for myself, but I was just because I, you know, making work is is uh, creative work. Um, if you if art imitates life, which I feel like, you know for me it definitely always has. Absolutely. But if it imitates life, you know, directly when you're going through a trauma, you it's so destabilizing, um, and, and obviously the trauma is like you know you're totally flattened. So I just couldn't. I went into teaching actually because of that. So I went into teaching to have some stability because I just needed a reason to get up, to be honest. Like, because I think if I hadn't had that, I probably wouldn't be here. Yeah. And what was the teaching you were doing at that point then? To... So I was teaching, so I did a PGCE and I was teaching um, 
so I, I was doing my PGCE at Goldsmiths just um, when when this happened. I just started it, and I had there was this woman who I'm still friends with now, who was running the course, who was just amazing. And um, the accident happened. And I just finished. I, they got me through this PGCE, which was such a it was just a reason to to, to it was like a survival focus, Something like a focus bit of continuity. On, yeah. So I finished that and I started teaching um, art and French and Italian, like, and weirdly German, actually. <laughs> and so, yeah, and, um, and so, yeah, did that. For, I mean, I've only just finished doing it. I got, I started doing it less and less and less. So and that helped, that part of that helped get you through. Well, it was just like this focus of the sort of, first of all, it was all about stability. And I wasn't, you know, I was definitely not feeling a sort of vocation to work with young people at all. But then as the years went on, I it's totally shaped what I do and my life and the way I relate to young people. And there's such a, you know, a bright source of amazing energy and like vibrancy and they've taught me so many things and I actually I mean it's the first time in six years that I've not that I'm not going to be sort of working with young people you know on a you know weekly basis and um yeah like they they keep you like they keep you alive and connected to the world you know um can you tell us about the first project that you did that was directly um connected to your loss uh, yeah, I did um, a project with my dad, actually, um, who was, as I said, was the only survivor of the mm. accident. So he and I, um, we started, um, uh, we did this, we, we did a small exhibition based on um, his, so it was, it was really an opportunity for me to actually understand him better because I never really had a very close relationship with him. Um, and when everyone else died, I was like, fuck, he's, he's kind of all I've got left. So, you know, I'm going to, I sort of had this idea to make a project as a way of kind of connecting because mm. he ended up sharing things with me that he never would have shared had I just said, oh, let's sit down and have a chat. Like, it, you know, but there was a part of him that was, you know, pretty exhibitionist and sort of bit narcissist that kind of he was like oh great you know like so he he ended up sort of sharing all of these beautiful memories and he's someone who came from this really tough background you know like very much trained from like a young age to not um to not really show emotion but had it in him you know really had it in him and you know really wanted to kind of connect and I used to see him connect to other people and be really envious and so I you know this this project was really great because it kind of we we you know we shared this beautiful he shared this beautiful story of how he met my mum who you know was many women in his life actually but um then throughout the whole of his life but he really I think she really was the love of his life and and he told me this he sort of retells the story and we made a film about it as well which we kind of in the process of make like finishing. What in what what form did the project take? So it was like a um so we made a book with about this kind of beautiful love story and, and loss and survival and I was I'm really interested in rituals for survival and I spent quite a long time with him in Portugal kind of like following him around seeing what he did because he had this beautiful way that, something that I've really lucky to have inherited like this beautiful way of trying to um, find at least one good thing in every day like simple thing so he used to go down to like the fish market and get this like little little glass of sparkling wine and have like a few oysters and just like stand up and basically talk to anyone who cares 
and like really loudly in this really loud northern accent in this like little Portuguese village <laughs> but like had loads of mates somehow and um yeah and and do that or you know just make something beautiful of every day and his heart must have been just broken you know like he went on holiday to New York and came back with nothing you know so he went with everyone came back with nothing it's kind of like you know yeah um but was so I yeah I would he was I would define him as an absolute hero actually in the truest sense of the word and he came back to Portugal he did yeah he did he came back to Portugal um and we kind of all went over to you know check in on him and stuff um and then he just picked himself up he he ended up marrying this woman that he hired a car from (laughs) 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 it's like fair play to you you know like I mean it was obviously like you know yeah he kind of identified the massive gaps in his life and was like I've got to do something otherwise I'm going to die and I get it you know like I get that survival instinct Mm. we're at different parts of our life you know I would like to think I wouldn't just marry someone that I had a car from but different you know Mm -hmm. at the end of your life you're like well fuck it you know I don't want to be on my own it's never going to replace what I've lost but yeah it's someone to be around as well, isn't it? Somebody yeah. that you can share your time with. You can, because it sounds like he's the kind of person that really, when he notices something, he wants to share that with other people. Is that right? Or if he sees something beautiful, then he's like, can yeah, see that? oh, just you know, couldn't was not made to be alone, you know, at all. Like this sort of, yeah, massive storyteller, loved a big audience, you know, loved as many people in the <laughs> house as possible, you know, like just would want to fill it. So, I mean, all of his friends, all of his dearest friends would call him the Pied Piper, like go out and come back <laughs> with like 30 people, you know, and like my mum was called Harriet, he used to call her H and he'd be like, oh, can't, you know, H, I've just brought back a few people. So it'd be literally like, just, yeah, we used to have dinners. I've got photos of like family dinners and there's like, yeah, 30 people on like a Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredible. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. What a lovely way to, to spend your childhood. Quite random though, I guess. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I just don't even know where to go with some of this stuff. Incredible. Um, so some of your work involves revisiting places um, where you have very strong memories of being with your family. Yeah. Um, such as a return to Portugal and New York and your Blackpool project. Can you tell us a bit more about the idea of place in your art? Yeah, so from New York to Blackpool. Um, <laughs> yeah, all the glamorous spots. Um, yeah, so place is is really important um, for me in terms of... Well, memory is obviously... You know, memory and storytelling are intrinsically linked. So um, I a lot of what I've done in the past few years is, has been about kind of processing my grief, processing my... or understanding where I come from. Um, particularly when I was losing my dad was a really big thing for me. I mean, obviously losing the others is, was as well, but losing my dad was like losing the last part of what I come from. So I've done a lot in the last couple of years um, to try and understand that and to try and understand, um, or I think a lot about legacy. So I have wanted to work out what I want to take forward and what I actually want to kind of leave behind. So you know, there's a, so Blackpool, my dad was born in Blackpool, I've heard so many beautiful stories, and, and so many, you know, also not so nice stories as well, and, you know, he was, he was such a big character, they all were, and um, I've been trying to, when, when I, when they were all alive, it was actually quite difficult to find myself amongst that, 
because you couldn't get a word in edgeways and <laughs> and when now they're all gone you know, I still have an older sister but um but the others are gone and you have to find your voice like you know all of a sudden you're like by yourself and you know you're used to being like bombarded by really bold characters you have to find your voice and and in order to do that you kind of need to revisit all of these significant chapters so Portugal we, mm. we lived there for many years and New York was where they died and you know Blackpool and probably you know I'm also going to go back to Italy as well because my sister Sonia um yeah her, her, her part of her family are from Italy so it's a big part of our life as well and then in each of these places, you do stuff that's specific to those places and moments, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So I tell kind of stories that it's almost like every time I do it, like New York was a really big one for me this summer um, doing this residency. It's like I regained some years of my life, like some of those like lost years of my life and New York particularly. And you can, I kind of have been plowing through stuff um, in a really, like it's been really enjoyable but every time I put something out onto the street, I kind of like let it go a bit. And it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of necessary because it leads to the next piece of work. And it's like you shed a layer every time. Um, but in also in shedding that layer, you're kind of sharing something with the world. I've been trying to sort of strike the right balance, you know, so you have to kind of put stuff out there in order to see how people publicly receive it. Um, and the first stuff that I was doing was, was very raw and very intense and, you know, and, and then you sort of find a way to, I mean, I, I, I want to connect, you know, as much as I can to people, but at the same time, I, I need to be true to my story. So you have to find that balance mm. in terms of your storytelling. You're kind of creating a legacy, talking about the legacy of your family, but at the same time, creating closure for yourself. It's yeah, really, yeah. Um, but it's amazing. I think that you must have, by bringing these things to the fore in your art and being so open about them must really help other people as well have you had a lot of yeah I have had a lot of really beautiful responses and um people just you know they they are sort of so they can be so emotionally generous which is really um humbling and really amazing and it's um it's also I was saying to my sister last night it's really great because it kind of it makes you know you know I know this anyway but it makes me realize all the more every time I get a story like this um that we all just carry our art we all have armor on and we all kind of go around the world and you know you can so easily get someone wrong you know from how they kind of navigate the world because you have to kind of toughen up in order to exist in it sometimes you know if you've had terrible things happen to you and um it just it makes me feel part of something actually uh, you know rather than this sort of unique tragic case because you know I, I absolutely refuse to be a victim of it absolutely like point blank refuse that because in many ways it's you know I would have them back in a second but it, it's sort of it's my back has gone been against the wall so intensely that it's forced me to understand myself and the people that I love um <laughs> sorry it, no no it's, no it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing I just um it's just incredible where you've come from and the tools you've used to deal with with the way you feel and then where you are now and how inspiring you are to other people. I find that incredible. Thank you.
We're having a great time recording the podcast and it's really good to hear that you guys are enjoying it too. So keep on commenting, letting us know that you're enjoying it. Like and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram so you can keep up with what we're doing. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. Now back to the show. We couldn't find anything in our research about the name The Fandango Kid. Can you explain where the name comes from? My mum used to call me Fandango, actually, for whatever reason. I don't know. And um, and then one day with my dad, we used to watch on repeat. Um, we used to watch Easy Rider. I love that. Film. Yeah, it was great. And um, and we sat down one day, and he was like going into some like real detail about Easy Rider. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, anyway. And then he started talking about this other Western film called The Durango Kid. Okay, yeah. And The Durango Kid, he had this mate in school called Durango Snotball, and it's like this kind of combination <laughs> of like this kid with this big like snot thing. Yeah. And so it's like, and he always used to call me our kid as well. So it's like, oh, it's just. And he had this like brainwave, like really high one day. He's ah, oh, let's call you the Fandango Kid. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it came up. So that, that were you? When was that? That was. I was in school. Uh, I was uh, 20, 21 or something. Amazing. Yeah. Was it a little? Take a little bit of time before you decided to call yourself that, or did you, everyone call you that from then? Uh, uh, I think from about 25 everyone called me that yeah some people don't know what my real name is actually <laughs> <laughs> so fandango is quite yeah most people call me fandango yeah even on the coffee docket this morning they were like fandango <laughs> <laughs> so your work has i hope you don't mind me saying it quite a low-tech aesthetic yeah and, and you, <laughs> basic and, yeah and you choose to exhibit in cafes subways alleys places like that and the medium of paste-ups is much more of a street medium than a gallery medium. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about your choice of, of paste-ups? Uh, in terms of location? In location or... and the choice of that as a medium. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, well, yeah, I am really interested in making work that's kind of, um, that is accessible for a start. So that's would be my, where, you know, my choice of where I put it. Um, having worked with young people in this neighbourhood um, and in kind of, you know, in parts of London, inner city London for years, I know that they, many of them just don't feel like they have any place in a gallery setting. So, you know, having like heard that on a daily basis, I just really want to make work that would have an impact on uh, average, like a normal person, you know? So someone who might be walking past and maybe having a really shitty day and might actually read my work and maybe have a think about it and you know relate to it in some way so I don't want to just preach to my own echo chamber because there's no point I may as well sit in my own house and look at it as I want it to impact on people who would never normally you know um be able to access it that's important to me as well when I was one of the last generations to have a grant for university right right and so I got free education I'm a council estate kid originally so right um, I got to go to uni and I studied fine art, which is like ridiculous, but I loved it. And all the time I was there, all I wanted to do was take the younger kids from the council state up to Tate Britain was the only one that was open then and just show them that art can belong to them as well. Yeah. And that's what I love about your work is that it's kind of like almost saying fuck you to the traditions of fine art. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like the Paris 68 kind of um, paste up 
um, strikers, union strikers thing from the late 60s where yeah. screen printers were printing and then sticking paste up all over the street. Yeah, well, um, yeah, It definitely. has more of that, but from an emotional landscape, I think, or, or um, and, and I, that's what I love about your work is it's in the public space. And that's why when I talked about it being low tech, I just mean like <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't become something ridiculously valuable. It it becomes something that is almost there as a as a way to communicate a message to people or to sympathise with people in some some respects. Yeah. Or to call people out as well sometimes. Yes, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a bit of that. Um and just I think like to almost become part of the landscape, you know. And I I remember watching this documentary about Jenny Holzer and how she started her career and she was doing paste ups and putting them around New York and kind of yeah, she didn't really have this classic art training, um, art school training, and yeah, she did. And that's how those all the truism started. And I just remember thinking, yeah, fuck it, you know. Again, this whole like punk mentality of like, I got something to say. Actually, like I probably could be dead by now, like with everything that I've gone through and nearly was. And so maybe I'll just. I feel like you know, if you come through something like I've come through, then it's a really nice idea to try and use it for the better you know absolutely yeah um typography features in all of your work um is it is that right yeah yeah pretty much yeah um yeah. where did the love of type come from is that um i think yeah i i, I don't know i've always i mean i guess language has always been really key you know and this i this storytelling idea you know storytelling that's always like kind of gone through my family so from you know as I was saying from being little and hearing all these stories and kind of sitting around the table and there was never any there was never like a kid's table in our family it was always like you're either all in or you're all out kind of thing and so hearing these really intense stories and wanting to there was like it was a lot of like this sort of real kudos to someone who could tell a good story you know so I learned that from a really young age and you didn't if because they were all so loud you know like, you, <laughs> like if you didn't tell us if you couldn't tell a good story then you basically had no chance so yeah you just had to sit and listen otherwise. yeah yeah it's yeah. a dying art I think storytelling I yeah think people, people's and it really, attention span is much shorter for stories it is I think and it, I think but it really brings people together you know, and so the, yeah, and then the typesetting, and I used to love like when I was at uni, um, sitting in the dark, like in this sort of dark basement and doing like proper um, typesetting, you know, and learning how to do that, and sort of all the nerds that loved it, and just thinking, wow, it's such a niche thing, and you know, there's a certain kind of person that's a typeset, like a, you know, does the letterpress and stuff, and you're like, wow, this is you know, it's really cool. <laughs> It's like yeah. the, the best type of nerds club. Best ever. nerds. Best I love, nerds. I love, yeah. I love type. I'm definitely a type nerd. Yeah. You're just a nerd. I'm just a general. Like it's general. Just a general nerd. I should get like a military uniform with like general nerd on it. Definitely get a boiler suit. There you go. General Maybe I'll commission you to do me a general nerd. Boiler suit. Awesome. Boiler suit. Yeah. <laughs> I did have, when I first went out to the US a few years ago, um, when I first met my partner, I ended up, well, I visited a military camp just after 9-11, weirdly. Uh, and this guy, Brad Treffs, he let me hold his gun. It sounds a bit weird. And uh, in, the end, in the end, he gave me like this like military green boiler suit. There's a picture of me somewhere. I'll, I'll find that. Wow, what a dude. Um, sounds good. Yeah, yeah well. 
It sounds like an unusual encounter. It was a very unusual encounter. <laughs> that sounds like the one we need to customise. Yeah. yeah. Have yeah. I have still got it. Sure we could print on that. Gold on the Ooh, back. That'd be good. General nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Massive. Yeah. Oh, long, I like that. I like yeah. The long okay. ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so type gives you a voice to address varying issues in a public forum, such as your Calling Out the Creeps project. Yes. Where did the idea for this project come from? Uh, it came from going out to see Grace Jones last year. Um, so she's like a big, um, a big heroine of mine. I just love her. Um, have done for years, and uh, she's sort of like the ultimate human for me. And um, my friend had got me a ticket to to go, not only to go and see her film, but to actually meet her afterwards. So I was like, oh, okay. So I dressed up in like my most sort of radical Grace Jones kind of outfit, like this military hat and this like conical bra and um, leather pants and like this sort of whole outfit. And I was like really, I was like strutting down the street, just like really enjoying myself. And um, and then I got to the lights, um, got to the lights and this guy, these two guys said something like, suck my cock or something. And I was just like, you know what? And I kind of, because it's happened to me before as well, quite a lot, not necessarily those words, but a lot of stuff like that. And, um, and I just, just, I've had enough of this. Like, how dare you ruin my, like, like you know, the anticipation that I feel about Grace Jones, mm. you know? Like, how dare you? So I shouted back, like, suck your own cocks. Like, you know, you're going <laughs> like, to... I was like, you're going to need to because no one else is going to want to, like, really loudly. And this one woman started laughing and then they just got, like, you know, quite sort of ego damaged and upset and sped, and sped <laughs> off. But I just thought, like, yeah, how dare you? So I started to think about, like, making a comp... How compliments can be made to people and, you know, how you can do that you know really beautifully if you choose to and if you you know if you feel like you all you can say is suck my cock then actually it's probably the person who you're directing it at is the person who wants to receive it the least you know like so and then when I got to the the venue I was at the bar and this guy came up to me and he said something like just like a really nice comment like you look beautiful or something you look great or something like that with nothing, like not expecting anything in return, as far as I know. And I said, like, I just said, thank you. And I then started to think, you know, it's just so easy. Like, it's so easy to mm. make someone feel good. And it's also so easy to make someone just feel, you know, because then when that happens to, when someone gets harassed on the street or cat calls, you, the person who's being cat called carries shame and carries, yes. you carry that shame. Like, it's just sort of almost like it's thrown at you and it's just outrageous. You know, it, it totally derails your day. It makes you, I still think about things that have happened to me now. It happens to women I know all the time, you know, and, you know, it happens to er many people. Um, and so we recently just made this short film about that, actually, about privilege and lack of privilege um, with this, this friend of mine who looked at, who, he looked at it from a race perspective and I look at it from a gender perspective and we did this big paste up together. And yeah, one of the things that I say in that film is like, you know what, if you want to wear your fucking cat suit to the shop to buy milk, because I try it on a daily basis, <laughs> then you then like you, you do it and no one has the right to say anything unless it's something that's going to make you feel good. Otherwise, shut up, you know, just yeah. enough. Yes, that's, own, your about that. own your magic. Own your magic, as Susie would own say. Your magic, own your magic, you know, own your magic. Yeah, exactly. Don't let anyone else take your magic. That's, you know. Good sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> just, I think it's just great that you, 
you that you had the confidence to turn around and say something back as well in a world where there's so much fear to actually rebuff people when they say stuff like that oh, i just had enough just at to, this point it's just like you, who what, do you think you are you was know? there a second when you thought should i shouldn't i and then you just fucking it was in it anyway. a it was in a really busy spot in old street so i was like well oh, there's nothing i'm you know just gonna put it out there <laughs> Because right, I was like, you know, I'm going to pass my shame back to back to you yeah. because you're the, you know, you're the people that are kind of perpetuating this. So I'm not. I was, I was absolutely. I was like, I just get thinking of Grace Jones. I was like, what would she do? And um, yeah, I was like, how dare you? You know, it's like your power animal, your Grace Jones yeah. power animal. What would Grace do? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, she probably would have kicked the stiletto through their neck. Or something yeah, because like I, I just before I left the house, I've been watching her like on doing this um, on stage. I don't know where she was, and she was banging these symbols together. And I was on the internet googling symbols. It's like I need to buy some symbols. <laughs> and so, and then I was just like, yeah, I had this whole kind of like visions in my head. And then I got to the lights, and I was just like, it just disturbed me. It like got broke me out of my really nice thoughts. And I was just like, oh, just fuckers, yeah. <laughs> um, so you've recently got back from America yes um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about your recent show in New York yeah well I did a residency in um, a place in Red Hook um, called Deconstruct and I um, wanted to do work about beauty within trauma so um, basically what I was saying to you before about finding um, these these kind of little moments of sort of micro joy on in a sort of macro kind of experience of trauma because I think that with our family and I don't know about other ex people's experiences of trauma but with our family we experienced like a lot of um, there was a lot of comedy and a lot of laughter and a lot of um, beautiful ritual within a lot of pain and so I wanted to tell some of those stories of that that period of you know immediate trauma after the accident happened in New York um and though yeah I wanted to sort of again like shed some layers and get those stories out there um and find some spaces to put that work can you just share a couple of those stories the the uh, one yeah. with, when you go on a pub crawl of your sister is absolutely <laughs> I love that story yeah so that um so when my so my sister was the first person to die in this accident and um I was signed as like for whatever reason I had to go and pick up her ashes as like her next of kin and no one else wanted to come with me like they were all really traumatized fair enough <laughs> and um and so I was like, okay, cool. I'll walk up town, uh, up like uh, we were staying downtown, and I walked like thirty blocks. And she was like, so she had she had been cremated in the same somehow. Like I was laughing so much when I got there. She'd been cremated in the same place as Jackie Onassis got cremated. <laughs> so I kind of got there, and I was just like, there's all these pictures of like presidents on the wall. And I was like, and I remember carrying her and just being like, fucking hell, like how are you here? Like what has happened? So I went to pick her up, signed all the paperwork, and carried this like massive, well, this urn downtown. Um, and it was snowing, and it was like just this like yeah, kind of autumn in New York and and I was like I can't like yeah I can't take her home just right now so I took her I kind of was talking to her the whole time you know I think you like lose all sense of giving a shit when you're in trauma but I took her to a few bars that I knew from like from from uptown to downtown and took her on this really beautiful pub crawl basically and put her on the bar and New Yorkers they talk so much as well so you know they were kind of everyone asked me and 
and um, I pretty much had like the the most boozy free night actually because no one would let me pay for anything. So, like who's this, <laughs> who's this girl with this urn like talking to it? So she had like a pint of Guinness or a pint of lager maybe. A pint of, she was a big drinker anyway, and I had. Um, a whiskey. I got really into whiskey then, and um, and so by the time I actually got home, I was like, oh my god, I'm glad I've still got her. You know, like, <laughs> I would, like left her in some bar, but um, yeah, we did. You know, we kind of toasted life, and that was the first. The first time it was only about a week later. Um, that was the first time I remember thinking, yeah, there's some gems in with amidst this sort of pain. Like you know, I can find ways that I might be able to survive. Because you're kind of looking for ways that you can survive at that point. Because there was quite a long time when I didn't know if I would. So, yeah. yeah. How many times have you been back to New York? Um, I've been about four times, yeah. But it's taken me this long to actually be able to make anything. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's taken six years. So this time's the first time you've done a, a yeah. show there? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, for wanting to find the right fit, for being ready, yeah. you know... When you're in, I, it's actually, I don't know if you've seen this film with Nick Cave about his, the loss of his son. It's called Not One yet. More Time with Feeling. It's, it's really had a huge impact on me. And he says so many things that resonate. And like he talks about being in the midst of trauma and not being able to make anything. And like, or you just lose all sense of like, you know, if you're a perfectionist about things, you just can't because you're, it's so at the forefront of your mind all the time. And the, yeah, there's that. You can't make anything for a long time. Like that is, you know, y yeah, you just have to plough through. So, yeah. Um, how, and how, how do you feel now when you visit New York, like this trip? Um, it's always, uh, I mean, there's always a sort of heaviness to it, but I, it's weird because I, I have, it's like, it, it's really hard to sort of explain. It's such an irony in pain, but it kind of like makes my heart sing New York. Like it makes me, it's makes me feel really alive. I feel really close to them. I feel like I can feel their spirit really strongly. Um, and I'm really planning to keep going back and do, mm. you know, to spend a lot more time there work wise. Um, there's a real, it's very, it's been very surprising for my sister Anna because she feels the same. Right. Yeah. It's got a vibrancy that place. It has Just, a vibrancy, yeah. and I think you know. I also know they were having this amazing time as yeah. well before they died, and um, you know, we yeah. There's a and I think also there's something about I think a lot about ancestry because I know my granddad went there never to be seen again. Probably had like a million kids, and you know, <laughs> like yeah, you know. So yeah, I I think that's I don't know. There's something there that's a spirit, strong spirit. They're great storytellers as well. They're great storytellers, exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's something about that kind of, I like that, you know, yeah, the sort of crazy old Jewish ladies on the street, you know, and this, I don't know, it, I, it really connects me to what I come from somehow. You know, people just start talking to you and yeah, yeah there's a lot of like, you know, wild dressing and crazy you know like a lot of crazy old ladies the crazy old ladies I love the most I think <laughs> yeah and um, so then after you were in New York you took a road trip this yeah trip. can you tell us a bit about that yes yeah, so you the, visited some incredible places yeah so we so when my when my dad was alive we always planned to do again it's this thing of we always planned to do this route 66 trip in a Mustang 
and listen to Bob Dylan eat fried chicken basically so I had said to him that I would still do it and um, we never got to do it when he was alive and so we met we actually didn't get a Mustang we got a Camaro which was the last car he was a red one the last car he was driving before he died at like nearly 80 and um, we got this convertible red Camaro and we drove it through the desert um, and from like LA to Vegas and Palm Springs and just cruised around and it was just really funny because you like pull up at traffic lights and people would be like hey ladies and we'd be like <laughs> and like try and like speed off but I was like I'm a really shit driver so I just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah not smooth but tried to be smooth I mean yeah some radical outfits a lot of like a lot of mad outfits and you know good tunes yeah it's got yeah. fear and loathing in las vegas kind of yeah actually kind of i really hated las vegas yeah I really, yeah it's a lot of creeps in Las Vegas because yeah. i was imagining like um de niro and sharon stone and like all this sort of glamour so we got really dressed up and i have this like long gold dress and i ended up like the most exciting part of vegas was we drove to the supermarket and like walked around in our like gold dresses in the city <laughs> went and did like a massive shop basically because we were like oh the casino is really gross there's like a real exploitation of women like there's loads of creeps you know and yeah it was like you know all your kind of it's like being like maybe like Benidorm or something but like amplified like a three of place. them I've been there I went for a week for, right, oh, a, for a week ago. oh wow yeah I did like a big trade show there it was uh it's weird, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really strange place. Yeah, I yeah. Got, I got married there. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. I found it, like, basically, my my wife being American, we had to, in order to be married, to be in the same uh, yeah, place yeah. to make it work, which yeah, is yeah. your scenario. So I went out there expecting it just to be me and her, and all of my friends and family came out there, and it was amazing. I don't gamble or anything, so... I found it really quite a creepy place as well. We, yeah. went, we had dinner one night in a hall where there were live owls flying around and people <laughs> dressed in armour and stuff. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so, but I found it really like a strange place as well. I definitely don't think we'll be going back there. I mean, it's. I think it's really important to, because I would have had it in my mind that it was like this, you know, I was planning on going around with like poker chips and like, you know, like loads of gold rings and just sort of like flashing around stuff, but wasn't any of that. There's no glamour left there. No glamour. It's actually kind of gross. You yeah. Know? Like it was, yeah. There's a lot of slots and a lot of, um, <laughs> they don't have any um, windows in a lot of them, so you can't tell. No, what you can't time tell what's happening. And they're you've churning out, you can smoke yeah. in there, but yeah. like nothing smells of smoke, so I don't know where it's going. <laughs> it's like, it's like really gross, sort of like everyone's puffing away on cigarettes, but nothing smells of smoke. So it's like, where, what's happening? It's like probably going up to my room where I'm like, yeah. You yeah. Know, it's we got set... that jaded seaside town feel to it, but without the sea, yeah, without, without the beauty yeah. of the seaside town. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you visited the uh, Seven Magic Mountains exhibit? We did, Vegas. yeah. That was unbelievable. That was really great. It's really touristy, though. There's a lot of people right. there that day, which is a, was a shame, but it was really amazing. Yeah, because I'd seen a, this girl um, who's a hula hooper who'd taken a hula hoop out there. Right. Um, she lives in Hackney and she had done this big thing and I was like oh, I've got to go there so it's really cool you're learning to hula hoop right? yeah I'm actually quite an experienced hula hoop oh right sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've been, I've been a hula hoop for a while yeah watch a film do a hula hoop it's a good bit of exercise yeah yeah <laughs> should try it oh yeah I was going to ask you about the uh, the Madonna Inn 
Oh, yeah. So I nearly stayed. I, I got there as the last room got oh, rented no. out one. But always wanted to stay there. Oh, Can you tell us a bit about the, the Madonna, Madonna Inn? The Madonna Inn is amazing. It's like just a acid dream. It's just incredible. Um, we stayed in the... Um, the love nest i think right. which is like pretty funny and they had like it's like this furry pink carpet and then a spiral staircase that goes up to this sort of turret that you can just sit in like it's sort of <laughs> a bit weird and the turret is like this sort of multicolored so all the glass is different kind of colors so you sit in this turret and you're like where am i you know we kind of went to the ballroom for dinner and then came back and sat in the turret just like yeah um yeah it's amazing yeah i need yeah. to get there it's so amazing. It's we'll stay there one day. Huh? Definitely, okay. definitely, hundred <laughs> percent. And they have these like um, they make these like fluoro cakes that are like the size of like this table. They're just nuts. Blimey. Yeah, everything is like served in like like um, goblets, and like they bring around this sort of like retro cheese plate that's not. It's like looks ironic, but it's not. It's like yeah. And a Vionetta, maybe? I wish they had Vionetta. <laughs> yeah, that would be perfect. Well, maybe not for you, but... Yeah. No. <laughs> we won't go into that. Yeah, no, don't go into that. <laughs> um, so, moving on a little bit. Um, love's a big theme in your work. We talked earlier about the... Is it the Four Corners work? Was that the piece you did with, yeah. your, with your dad? Mm-hmm. Where it was, yeah, we put talks, some of that work. It yeah. talks about him... Uh, meeting your mum for the first time, I think, which is beautiful. It's like, what's it? When did I know I loved her? On my way back from our first date. Is yeah, that like, that's, yeah. that's just beautiful. So I'm guessing you believe in love, and this is quite a big question. What does love mean to you? Um, I guess it's like, you know, uh, about accept, being accepted, because it's like, you know, it's extremely flawed, which is, you know, something that, it's taken me a long time to understand and I get it's sort of really seeing someone inside out and choosing to love them anyway actually <laughs> I think yeah so yeah you know just and being totally honest with who you are and I mean I think there's some things that you can really work on definitely I know there are things you can work on um but that you know then there's like the core of who you are and what you believe in and I think it's also just understanding that people can and will fuck up, like you included. Yeah. So you have to really just have a wide berth for that. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about us having a sort of core. It's sort of we remain the same from quite a young age, I think. Yeah. I guess you meet other people who will accept that core, that unchangeable core of who you are, and you'll meet other people that can't accept it. Yeah. And so you almost find your tribe via this idea of, of love you'll find other people that will accept the way you are and you've probably got something within yourself and within that friend or family that is similar maybe I think so I mean I think you know I noticed like when my sister died a lot of her friends started to who didn't necessarily know each other they um all connected um through because of the loss of her and they all said that there was this sort of common point running through each of them and you can kind of see it and they've actually formed friendships now um many of them and I think you do that you know I think uh, what happens with you know with with like real loss or trauma or pain is that you like that kind of protective layer is totally dismantled so you kind of you your most real self even if you don't want to be um even if you know you're not 
sort of ready to be you are because you don't have the energy to sort of cover it up so um you the relationships that I've made since I lost my family are just you know people have seen me in my most raw like horrendous state and because that's happened I've actually you know in subsequent years seen them in, in you know in in ways that I probably never would have if I hadn't experienced whatever experienced so my experience of love is very much like I am known like inside out by the people around me I'm really lucky to have like such a good group and um and I sort of really want to do that with with you know I sort of seek to do that with people really because what else is there yeah like, what else is there really it's too short for pretense yeah isn't it? It, yeah and be yourself and you know sometimes if I go on dates and stuff I actually kind of try it out like I sort of test out my like most like honest self and you can just you tell straight away right if you like totally freak someone out or yeah. if it's like really amusing <laughs> but it does I think when you like yeah losing a lot and really knowing yourself is quite is seems to be quite frightening to people because a lot of people don't know themselves so and it's funny though because that happens from a young age people are through parents, through school, and it's not a deliberate thing. They're taught that there's a certain way to be, and sometimes the person underneath totally clashes with the person that they feel they have to be. Yeah. And I, th- I guess what you're talking about is is when um, when you don't have the energy for the pretense, then the real person sort of emerges. Yeah. For for however they sort of might feel, and sometimes that can probably be incredibly liberating for some people who, for their entire life have probably been, have crushed the real person. But Definitely. Like a strong father or something like this. or So it's quite interesting that, that, that somebody's love can be when they see that real person and that's the person they choose to accept. Yeah, regardless. I mean, it must be, it's a beautiful thing, I think. And it's also really rare. I think, you know, I'm always amazed, really kind of amazed by, you know, people that sort of just in what sometimes seems to me to just be in a relationship just cause, you know, because I just, yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess, this thing of, like, what I grew up with, like, all in or all out kind of thing, you know. And someone said to me the other day, actually, this friend in New York was like, you know, she said, you know, some people just don't want, like, uh, fish guts on their hands, right? Meaning, like, you know, some people just don't want to really get into, like, the nitty-gritty of conversations, you know. And, I mean... I'm sure there's loads of couples that never do that. Like, mm, never yeah. in their whole time together do that. And it's like, well, well yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a strange what's the, yeah. thing. Maybe sometimes two people meet the other person that they, maybe they never want to go any deeper. They never want to think about those things. Yeah. It could totally blow someone's out. mind. Yeah, by, <laughs> yeah. Go round for a little cup of tea, drop a mind bomb in the middle of the living room <laughs> and then just watch everything explode. Yeah. But I think people also, you know, you were saying about what's at your core. Um, my really good friend, like this guy that I was saying that I grew up with actually, he has just had a baby in New York. And um, I stayed with him and this child is like a couple of weeks old and to see this person come into like she has this ready-made like kids come into the world with a personality Absolutely. you know they don't it's it, i mean obviously it forms and it develops with what you're around but she's come into the world with the strongest personality you know like she like one day she gripped my hand she's like three weeks old and like, it was like a vice and i was just <laughs> like my god this kid is like already like you know 
yeah, this force in the world, not through the not through the kind of shaping of her parents yeah, or absolutely. environmental factors, like come out of the womb and is like this beast. You we know? definitely aren't Lovable blank beast. canvases. No, we come out with, with some preordained personality or uh, almost an obje- objective. Because if we all came out kind of the same, you wouldn't end up with all the different roles, all of the different people that we need to make exactly. the society exactly. exist. Exactly. You're going to need the person that sits back and maybe observes things and says, what's that you're doing there? And the other person that just goes head on. And, you know, I think these personalities, there must be so many different types of personality that we need. Yeah, And beyond absolutely. that, it's that magic again. that mm. We're all born with a different type of Well, of I, I've got twins. And, oh, uh, really? Late one came out like really kind of grab everything and the other one's really thoughtful and creative really? and, yeah, and sits back so they and we've done nothing different with either of them amazing and, uh, yeah. wow wow totally that's incredible different Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. they often are yeah, yeah. They, it's often quite opposing from what i hear yeah yeah i think it's yeah i think it's um yeah you definitely i mean yeah you definitely come into the world with so i don't know what happens in the womb but it's like for you to kind of really form you know to form such a strong personality but yeah. We talked actually with Super Mundane about spirituality. I'm agnostic. I don't really believe in a big patriarch in the sky or any of this kind of stuff. But he's he's not really religious or spiritual either. But we talked about this this idea of there being something bigger, something more grand than us. And you talking about what happens in the womb. You can all imagine this little piece of magic that just creates. I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> this is a bit like biology 101. But um. I don't know. The older I get, the more I don't want to. I don't believe in a big god in the sky. But when you've got like, when you look out at the stars or the universe and stuff, it's just like there is something way bigger than us. Definitely, mm. and I think there's. I mean, I've I really believe in. Um, cause I've, I mean, I've been in a room where someone has literally just left the world, right? Like I've sat and watched someone die, and and I really believe in sort like the spirit of a sort. Like I know what a soul looks like. You know, I know what when it's there and when it's not there. So I really, yeah, there's a, and I definitely kind of feel um, protected by, like, not by a, a higher spiritual being, but by the people that love me. Yeah. Like, yeah, without a doubt. Like, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that. And I don't think that I'm, you know, that we're sort of going to, you know, reconnect in some, like, heaven sense or anything. But I do feel that there are, like, particles of it's energy. Hmm. That's how I feel about it sometimes. My daughter's obsessed with ghosts. Really? And I sometimes feel as though it's strong strong bits of energy that maybe we can't actually fathom at the moment. Like big moments or big people leave almost like trails of energy, potentially. Um, But she's obsessed with the fact that it's just actually people from the 1600s that went away (laughs) in the middle of the night or something. Amazing. So, yeah. That's, that's really there is definitely an essence that once it's gone a person is just an object yeah all of a sudden that soul mm. yeah it's so intangible i love that we still can't with all the science in the world we still can't get to the root of things like that no but it's there's definitely something there's something in it you know i remember seeing yeah like i saw my sister's girlfriend you know die and i remember then you know that it was like a seven hour thing and um, the changes that you go through and the feeling immediately afterwards and the weight of a spirit and stuff. And then when my mum died, I went to see her because I wasn't there when it happened. I went to see her when she came back here 
And I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I literally walked straight past her and thinking, because I've been used to, like, it sounds really fucked up, but I'd, you've been used to seeing quite a lot of bodies, so I sort of thought there'd be other ones in there or something, but it was, like, this funeral home, so I walked straight past and then I had to, like, back up, and I was like, oh, my God, that's my mum. And because she just looked, I've never seen, like, a, it was, I would have missed her. Like, if it, if it had been, like, in a police lineup, I wouldn't have picked my mum, wow. you know? Yeah. Because it was, like, the animation, so that, that animated, that real person was... Just nothing about her looked like my mum. Like, you know, at all. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but if it wasn't, I identified, like, Mrs. whatever, Mrs. Plumpton. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry <laughs> to laugh at that. That's, uh, uh, um... Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've been a teacher for many years. Yeah. Um, do you feel like your work is an amalgamation of teaching and art? Um, I think the the voice of the young people that I've worked with has really impacted on what I do. Um, what I do now, you know, in terms of like, I really want to communicate my work to young people. So I really want to kind of make work that's accessible broadly to... Um, I think you know their voice is so vibrant it's so bold and it's it's really important to me to have to they teach me so much you know like I've learned so much from them um and I would I test I mean I was testing a lot of my ideas with them you know a lot of the the way that I built this the art department um in Hackney about four years ago was was kind of with an art therapy focus so I wanted these young people to kind of understand themselves better through making you know and kind of share my experience on that level but also create a safe environment like a nurturing environment where they could feel free enough to develop their ideas creatively but also kind of protected enough to to share like you know more complex thoughts with me yeah uh, can you tell us a bit more about the the, the hackney Hackney, what's it? Hackney New School. Hackney New School, yeah. So um, it, um, they, the, I know the, the these two women who were setting up the school, the governors of that school, and they um, wanted to. They gave me this real blank canvas to kind of create this this art department. And when I first started, it was just me, and um, and I have always been interested in, in you know creativity to understand yourself better. So that was sort of my main remit for you know creating this this whole curriculum. Um, and there's a lot of really challenging kids, a lot you know of issues, a lot of stuff going on, um, a lot of grief, a lot of trauma, abandonment, all this kind of stuff. So they, I spent a really long time, like months and months and months, just trying to create a safe space where um, they could come and kind of share thoughts, you know, things that were going on, like very heavily present on a daily basis and you know exploring ways that they could express that based on what they were interested in you know in terms of like you know um i don't know like street art or you know design or whatever it might be and just kind of working with that to actually as a channel as a sort of platform for um their own kind of emotional expression and so it's quite it's quite unique in that sense yeah. Do you think you maybe gave some of these kids um, aspirations beyond what 
their everyday life showed them they could be because when you give kids a, a creative aspiration all of a sudden they can see so many different avenues for where their life can go yeah I think I mean I hope so many of them I mean I left as they were all going off to college and stuff and um many of them have gone to art school yeah Amazing. you know and um we had this really funny moment just before I left because this one kid who was sort of like it was really felt like a daughter and she I'd seen her grow like so much from being little and she had this interview in, in for art school and she she'd come in with this um she made this like prosthetic vagina and she'd written <laughs> on it like my bush is my own um, and like and then put all these like petals around it and then like this barbed wire thing and um and on the way out she I took her to the train station and the head teacher came out because I was always having problems with this kind of work with the head teacher and the head teacher came out and said oh what are you where are you going you know she, and she <laughs> said oh yeah I've made this look it's inspired by Miss Nicholson and I was just like oh my god she was like, yeah, you know, my bush is my own. And, and he was just like, okay, right, just, you know, off you go. Like, off you go to the stations. Like, and you were, like, proud. Super proud, you know. So, yeah, and then the, I came into work just before I left as well, and I found this ceramic penis on my desk. <laughs> and it said, um, and I, on this, all around it was written, um, I heard if you have one of these, you get better pay. And I was just like, that's amazing. Damn. Just left on my desk. And I was like, thank you. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just have my coffee now. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so lots of proud moments of seeing them grow and seeing what they ended up making. And, you know, we did this big, um, this big workshop about gender and gender equality in um, uh, the Baltic in Newcastle. And... Um, yeah, and they just, you know, we met with all these other schools from, like, the northeast, and the kids that we took with us, you know, many proud moments of, like, my God, you really can talk about who you are and your place in the world so comfortably, and, yeah, just seeing that kind of growth was just really wonderful, yeah. Some people just need somebody else to show them that they can they can share their feelings in that way. Yeah. And then to visualise it makes them real or like you've done, allows you to overcome certain things or to, to take your truth and, and then deal with it. Yeah, so I think, you know, like sharing, I, sh I was fairly honest about my story with them and why I make the work that I do and sharing your own experience of, of hardship and trauma or pain or whatever is, yeah, it was, I think it's been really useful, you know, because... You know, often if you're open, people are sort of open back and, you know, they don't... I'm always trying to sort of separate this idea of us and them because I think schools are doing this so badly and they mm. create this this us-them thing. You know, people seem to do it with kids anyway, which I always just find weird um, and just not necessary. And it's almost like a defensive, you know, it's sort of to protect yourself or something. And it's all you're doing is creating these, these barriers that um, I was trying to break those you know all the coolest teachers always do that anyway yeah and all my favorite teachers were the ones that I felt like there was no difference between them as a person and me as a person no it's really good and I think when you sort of one day I remember was quite moody in the morning and they made me stand outside <laughs> until I'd had my coffee and then they were like yeah you can come in now if you're gonna like be you know kinder or nicer and I was like okay so I went and I was like I'm really sorry <laughs> that's like, beautiful <laughs> yeah, that's really that. beautiful because the expectation is, as a grown-up, as a parent, as a teacher, is that you're always 
uh, stable and you're always the same. Yeah. That's the way you're viewed yeah. as as a grown up, but it's totally it's just, not true. Again, it's about like showing your flaws. You know, you're in a position of responsibility and you have to kind of assume that, you know, but yeah, showing your flaws and being real is like, I think it's the most endearing thing, to be honest. Like, I, I find, yeah. Vulnerability totally and, yeah. So, we always end the show with some quick fire questions. Okay. Ah. <laughs> so the first one is the big question which idea do you wish you'd thought of oh yeah well the hula hoop yeah I think it would be because it's so simple you know can, I've got a travel hoop I can take it on holiday travel hoop yeah wow. it goes it's like a figure of eight and you can take it with you took it to Palm Springs so you, you can fold, fold it, it up down, into right? it yeah okay. um, international yeah. hula hooping so you really yeah, are into your hula hooping very much so Grace Jones started it all so okay. you know big inspiration yeah so, noise or silence? Mm, noise. That was quite a tough call there, though. Yeah, I've, I've recently sort of got into meditating, but def- I'm used to noise. Yeah. I'm used to, like, noisy people. Well, from the, having a house where sometimes there's 30 people come back <laughs> in prompt, impromptu dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, definitely got to be noise. Um, so, uh, if you could have dinner with any artist, living or dead, uh, who would you choose? Oh, my God. And what would you cook as well? Um, I probably it probably would be great. Um, Grace Jones or Prince, actually. Yeah. Maybe, but you can have both of them. You you, yeah, I mean, it would be that would be great. Um, maybe <laughs> uh, maybe separately though, because I think you know it might be. I'm always I'm always scared of like no one getting a word in edgeways because of my childhood experiences. <laughs> 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 so yeah, and um, I think oh, would I have to cook? Yeah. What would you What would you cook? Um, You're hosting. Well, on the 80s theme, like to keep it real, just see what they're really about. So I might do like a nice chicken Kiev. <laughs> oh, <I like> <laughs> oh. um, and the last question, the big question, can art save the world? I think so. I think it's, it's saved my world. So I think, uh, yeah, I would like to think so. I think you have to keep... Um, like in like in a relationship, right? You have to keep reassessing it on a daily basis and reaffirming it, and you know, put throwing everything up into the air to decide what's true on a daily basis. But I really, I'd like to think it can. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening to the show. We've got some really incredible stuff coming up, so make sure to go follow us on Instagram. Like and subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud and tell your friends if you're enjoying it. We'll be back next month with more ideas.